When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll ask the question, is Trump like Nixon? Both won by exploiting the resentments of the white working class. Both covered up the crimes their campaigns committed against the Democrats. Nevertheless, Rick Perlstein says the answer is no. Trump is not like Nixon. That's coming up later in the show. Also, Tom Hayden finished a book on the anti-war movement of the 60s before he died in October. It's called Hell No, The Forgotten Power of the Vietnam Peace Movement, and it's out now. We'll talk about it with Tom's editor and publisher, Steve Wasserman. But first, the reclusive hedge fund billionaire who's the secret power behind Donald Trump. For that, we turn to Jane Mayer. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of several award-winning and best-selling books. Her latest, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, was named one of the 10 best books of the year by The New York Times. It's out now in paperback. Jane Mayer, welcome back. Great to be with you. Well, the reclusive hedge fund billionaire behind the Trump presidency is Robert Mercer. In The New Yorker this week, you have the first in-depth report on this mystery man and his daughter, Rebecca. That's Rebecca with a K. To do this story, you spoke with the Prince of Darkness himself, Stephen Bannon. What was that like? And what did he tell you about Robert Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca? Well, I was really on, on the edge of my seat to see what, what Bannon was like and uh, pacing around and waiting for him to call. And finally he did. And, you know, he turns out to be quite engaging and a lot of fun to talk to. I mean, I guess this we should have predicted this because really somebody who's gotten ahead the way he has has to have some pretty good skills. Anyway, he's a lot of fun to talk to. He's interesting. He he said about the Mercers that they had launched the Trump revolution and that they had more than any other donor in the last four years had the biggest impact of of anyone in in putting Trump in power. So he was pretty out front about the whole thing. So you say Bannon was a lot of fun to talk to. Is Robert Mercer a lot of fun to talk to? Robert Mercer wouldn't speak with me, and and that's not unusual. He doesn't speak almost uh, to anyone. Um, He actually, I quote someone, uh, he said to a colleague at some point where he works at a a, uh, an incredibly lucrative hedge fund in Long Island, and he said that he prefers the company of cats to humans. <laughs> so, um, and he, so he's he's a, a very terse speaker when he speaks at all. You say he heads an incredibly lucrative hedge fund. Who exactly is Robert Mercer, and how rich is he? He is the co-CEO um, with one other man of something called Renaissance Technologies. It's a hedge fund, as I said, in Long Island, and um, 
It's hard to know exactly how rich he is, but he is listed by institutional investor as making approximately $135 million a year. And that would have been true at least for the last 10 years or so. So he's getting up there in the billionaire category, I would think. But he's also a pretty big spender. For someone who never speaks and has this kind of austere exterior, he's been described as having the sort of the the personality of an icy cold poker player by the one person that did interview him, Sebastian Malaby, who wrote a book called um, More Money Than God about hedge funds. But anyway, for for someone like that, he has some pretty high-flying spending habits, even if he's not speaking. You, You get the feeling of is that Robert Mercer, who grew up quite middle class, hit it really big when he went to this hedge fund. And it wasn't until he was in his 40s. And it enabled him and his family to pretty much indulge any kind of material whim they had. And they, all of them, went off in different directions on incredible scales of shopping sprees. And one of the things that he wanted to buy and that his middle daughter, Rebecca, wanted to buy was an America that more closely fitted their political point of view. So they poured money into that project. Let's talk about that political project. You you say Robert Mercer basically never speaks. Nevertheless, you were able to find out quite a lot about his political ideas. I just want to ask you about a couple of these. What does Robert Mercer say about racism in the United States? This was the challenge, really, of doing this piece, cracking the code of who he is and what he believes in. And finally, I got lucky because one of the people who's worked in his firm for the last 20 years finally got angry at him for the way he's trying to influence American politics. And they had a big fight. And it's opened up a little bit of a glimpse into what Mercer really believes. And among the things that he believes are that white racism doesn't exist in America. He says there's only, there is no white racism. There's only black racism. And he says that the civil rights movement has made blacks less well off than before the civil rights movement. He thinks that the Civil Rights Act was one of the great mistakes in in modern American history. What does he say about the dangers of nuclear war? He got into an argument with somebody he worked with where in which he argued that Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, and nuclear war in general were not as bad as people think. It's survivable, he argues, and not only that, but the radiation from it, he suggests, from the fallout is good for people. So he'd say, you know, while in the blast zone, it wasn't so great for the Japanese, he was arguing outside of the blast zone, he would claim it was great for the Japanese health, which is just um, a position that has been (laughs) – there's there's just no scientific support from it, at least from – Conventional scientific authorities. I, I, I spoke to the National the Association for the Advancement of Science, and they said no. There's there there is no such support for this. <laughs> they said no, <laughs> and and you have a, a let's call it a fascinating story about what he says about the value of cats. He he has, according to his colleagues, a, a theory of humans, which is that they have no inherent value. 
that a human being is only worth as much as they can earn. So he would argue, for instance, and has that he earns, you know, two million times or thousands of times more than a school teacher. So that makes him that much more valuable. And that school teachers are, are marginally valuable. People on welfare, he suggests, have no value. They have negative value. And then he argues, though, that cats have value because they provide, watching them provides pleasure to people, unlike people. So um, it's a, it's a very, he, he's a, a, you know, we're sort of mocking him, but Bob Mercer is a brilliant computer scientist who figured out a way to use computers to kind of game the stock market and commodities markets worldwide and figure out how to build predictive models so that his firm would know where the markets are going and be able to trade on it in advance. And they've just plain minted money ever since that. So he's, he's brilliant at the things he's brilliant at, um, science and, and computer science and math. But he has really strange and almost absent human skills. I mean, people say that he can't look at you when you're in conversation with him. And it's painful for him, it seems, almost, to, to, to have to converse. So he's an odd mixture of things. Robert Mercer is reclusive, but his daughter, Rebecca, does not seem to be. You report that she lives in a $28 million apartment at Trump Place on Manhattan's Upper West Side. You report that she homeschools her children and that she's, quote, consumed by politics. You say Trump has embraced her in a big way. Why exactly is that? Well, um, because the Mercers embraced Trump in a big way. And it didn't happen until Ted Cruz um, fell apart as a candidate. First, they were backing Cruz. But when his campaign went down and many other conservatives were saying, we're not going to back Donald Trump, the, the Mercers left right on board with him. They look at him as a, you know, a vessel and not yeah. necessarily the best vessel, just the only one they could find because they just can't stand the Clintons. Um, and it's, it's beyond the normal level that they, some people have. Bob Mercer has told at least three people who I interviewed, and one of them's quoted about it on the record in the story, that he thinks that, that the Clintons are murderers. He thinks they've actually had their opponents killed. In a way, you can see similarities between him and Trump in that they both are susceptible to conspiracy theories and, and they, their information flow is from kind of dubious sources often. And, and the result are these opinions that are, you know, unconventional in the extreme. And Rebecca, let's talk about Rebecca, the, what should we call her? The public Mercer. Yeah, so she is really an activist and outspoken, at least within Republican circles. Again, she didn't give me an interview and she doesn't give interviews either. The Mercers disdain the media um, and have tried to build up, build up their own. They, they, they are the principal owners of Breitbart News. So Rebecca is, um, she's hard driving. She is impatient. She's a graduate of Stanford. She's very bright and she has a graduate degree from Stanford too. Uh, she worked for a little while in her father's firm as a trader and then went on, got married to a, a partner on Wall Street who, and they had these four kids that she homeschools now. But at any rate, she 
helped pour a lot of money, family money, into backing Romney in 2012. And when he didn't win, she was said to be incensed and kind of took matters into her own hands, turned on sort of the political consultants and the pollsters and decided that they didn't know what they were doing and that she would build up her own operation. And that's when the Mercers really stepped up and started becoming a force in American politics. So this is an important uh, element of your story. The Mercers fund candidates, but that's not the only part of their political spending. The other part is equally significant. What should we call it? The organizational and ideological apparatus. Let's talk about that. Since 2008, between 2008 and 2016, they put $77 million into American politics. And a lot of that went into building up a few organizations. One, they put $10 million into Breitbart News, which became a force on the right of sort of this economic nationalism of the type that 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 Bannon has been pushing um, and that that Trump's been pushing. And it's it's also been very closely associated with the alt-right and kind of tips over every now and then into kind of white supremacism and anti-Semitism and some of the other pretty unpleasant isms. Then they also built up their own data company. It's a political data analytics company called Cambridge Analytica, which is kind of like a propaganda machine almost. It, it, it claims to have a tremendous amount of information on American voters, something like 2,000 points of data on 220 million individual Americans. And with that data, it's able to send out social media messages that are sort of targeted to people to try to push them politically in, in a direction. And then they built up, among the other things that's been very important in the last campaign, they founded an organization called the Government Accountability Institute. And it produced the book Clinton Cash, which really went a long ways towards defining Hillary Clinton as corrupt. So it was the, the, the playbook, in a way, for how Trump and the other Republicans took on Hillary Clinton came out of that that book and, and, and that organization, which was funded by the Mercers. Rebecca Mercer has also made concrete contributions to the Trump White House in terms of the personnel. Let's talk about that. The, the Mercers very early on um, started working with Steve Bannon, which was one of the things that caught my eye was that before Steve Bannon became Donald Trump's political strategist, he was the political strategist for the Mercer family starting around 2012. And they, they were... Bannon sponsors financially. So there they, are these back years before Trump's elected that, that if you go back and you take a look at it, you begin to understand how Trump got elected in part because he had this group of people around him that the Mercers had been helping to support who had built up a platform for Trump. And, and that was Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway and um, David Bossy, who runs an organization called Citizens United. And um, they, were, they were helping build up the organizations that these people had. Last question, just sort of a footnote. Your story has mentioned something that hardly anybody that I know knew about. Robert Mercer has another daughter who, it turns out, is quite famous in her own right for suing Duke University. What's that story? That would be the youngest daughter, um, Heather Sue. She, in high school, decided she wanted to be a place kicker on the high school football team. And she went out for it and got on the team. And she's the only female on it. And 
after after high school, she went to Duke University and went out for that football team too. She got on that as a place kicker too, but she never got played much. And so she and her family sued the coach for gender discrimination. And they won. They won. Duke appealed, and the Mercers won yet again. They got a, a two million dollar judgment against Duke. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but uh, the Mercers are conservatives, and she, uh, the daughter, said, "I'm not a feminist. I'm an equalist." <laughs> Jane Mayer, her 10,000-word report on Robert Mercer. It's called The Reclusive Hedge Fund Tycoon Behind the Trump Presidency. It appears in The New Yorker this week. Jane, thank you for this terrific report, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on. Great to be with you. Now it's time to ask the question, is Trump like Nixon? If you Google that question, you get something like 4 million results. News stories with headlines like, Trump already looks like the worst of Richard Nixon. That was in the Huffington Post. Or, Trump is Nixon without the polish. That was in the Washington Post. Or, Trump and Nixon, the parallels are startling. That was the Guardian. But we're not so sure about that, so we want to check with Rick Perlstein. He wrote the book, Nixonland, and his newest one is The Invisible Bridge. Rick writes for Mother Jones, Newsweek, Slate, and The Nation, among others. We've seen him recently on TV with Chris Hayes on MSNBC. We reached him today in Chicago. Rick Perlstein, welcome back. Hi, John. Well, there's some obvious ways. Let's just start with this. that Trump is not like Nixon. I just want to bounce a few of these off you very briefly. Did Richard Nixon start out in business with a $14 million loan from his father? He was born in a house his father built. <laughs> <laughs> so the famous uh, first line in his... his Autobiography. Autobi right. And then uh, in his uh, farewell speech to the White House, he said his dad had a lemon grove and it was the poorest lemon grove in the entire state of california and that he sold it and then they immediately found oil underneath it so uh no he came from modest uh, circumstances though he was lying about the oil story so that definitely is something they do have in common okay <laughs> second did richard nixon run for political office for the first time when he was 70 years old i believe he was the president of his high school class he certainly was uh, head of student government at Whittier College. So, no, he has a, a long, long career in the uh, political game before he uh, became president and before he became senator and before he even became uh, vice president and before he became congressman. Yeah, basically, he had no other job for most of his life except being an elected uh, representative. Well, he was he, he, he did have a, a brief uh, legal career in uh, Whittier uh, after World War Two. But he had a terrible time at it because he handled uh, divorce cases and, and women would come in and describe the problems they suffered at the marital bed. And apparently he, he, was, he found that excruciating. And that leads me to my, my final question. Did the New York Post run a headline quoting a woman who said about Nixon, best sex I ever had? Um, well, I'd have to be agnostic about that. I haven't seen every <laughs> New York Post headline. So uh, we'll just have to table that question. But uh, Hunter S. Thompson did ask Richard Nixon uh, on the campaign trail in New Hampshire in 1968 if he'd had his annual orgasm yet. <laughs> so, 
So what do people think are the similarities? I've looked up some of this these articles. Howard Feynman wrote at the Huffington Post, Trump portrays the media as the enemy of the American people, and that's like Nixon. Do you agree with that? Well, both certainly uh, believed that the media uh, was the enemy of the American people, which they, you know, defined as coextensive with themselves. But Nixon, for the most part, would never say such a thing publicly. He would he would, you know, send out his vice president to say it, basically. Yeah. And that's, you know, like that, that that actually betokens a big difference, which is that Nixon was a very disciplined and shrewd and canny politician who uh, knew when to play his hand and when to hold his cards close to his breast, which uh, Donald Trump has absolutely no ability to do. Okay, how about this one? Psychologically, they're similar. Nixon burned with resentment. He was obsessed with his enemies, just like Trump. I think that's a pretty close match. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I prefer to uh, people like that as orthogonians, right? Uh, they're people who uh, are generally kind of right-wingers who uh, feel like they're always condescended to by you know, the smart set, you know, all the right people. You know, he's the outer borough guy who... Uh, came to Manhattan and was convinced that everyone was uh, looking down at him. And, you know, the, psychologically, you know, it speaks to, you remember, remember all Henry Kissinger's uh, famous line? He said, uh, what this man could have accomplished if, some, if, if someone had loved him when he was young. Yeah. This, this kind of void at the center of their whole, their, their soul, which they narcissistically have to fill with, you know, uh, control and domination and hierarchy and authority. So, yeah, there's definitely a similarity. Uh, and here's another argument. Nixon spent the 1968 campaign claiming he had a secret plan to bring peace with honor in Vietnam. Trump claims he has a secret plan to defeat ISIS. Uh, both of these, of course, are lies. Uh, how important is that as a similarity? Well, I mean, again, you know, it's it's similar on, on, on the surface, but Nixon was very uh, canny and deliberate about what he said and why he said it. I mean, he was on the campaign trail in New Hampshire. The specific quote was, you know, if elected, I will end the war and win the peace. You know, so it was very, very circumspect. You know, he didn't say we we're going to win. He just kind of said something that was very loyally and legalistic and, and was just enough to kind of, and this was very uh, Nixonian, this the skill that he had in rhetoric. He was able to say things, but have plausible deniability that he ever said it, right? So much like, you know, kind of the dog whistle on race, he kind of gave a dog whistle on Vietnam, whereas, you know, Donald Trump, you know, just kind of would would kind of blare these ridiculous things like we're going to bomb the hell out of ISIS, even though they're a, you know, insurgent movement, you know, inside of cities, you know, we're going to uh, create uh, safe zones uh, within Syria, but are not going to put anyone on the ground, which, of course, he's already, you know, lied about. You know, he, he, he doesn't have that sort of shrewd, uh, ability to maneuver. You know, it's, it's a very different kind of approach to winning supports. And our friend uh, Trevor Tim pointed out in The Guardian another similarity. Nixon ran for the White House by appealing for and winning the votes of resentful working class whites. We see exactly the same strategy in Trump's victory. Sure, but there's nothing particularly fresh in that. I mean, that's been the, you know, that's Nixon land, right? I mean, that's been the Republican playbook, you know, really ever since, in a lot of ways, uh, the Checkers speech. And it was, um, you know, they used to talk about Reagan Democrats. Reagan used to talk about making the, the, the Republican Party 
uh, having an appeal beyond uh, the country clubs. It's uh, Newt Gingrich. It's Sarah Palin. I mean, to the extent that anyone wins a, a Republican nomination in the presidency, that's how they do it. And that's, you know, a big part of why Mitt Romney failed. He wasn't able to convincingly sell that, you know, very standard Republican script. Okay, the biggest argument, Nixon tried to cover up the crimes Republicans committed against the Democratic Party during the 1972 campaign. Of course, that's what led to Watergate. Trump, too, is trying to cover up the crimes his campaign committed during the 2016 campaign, the way they the way they were helped by the Russians. In both cases, crimes against uh, the Democratic Party and the small-D Democratic process, and in both cases, uh, cover-up. Well, you know, like a lot of things with Trump, I mean, there's a similarity, but Trump, you know, turns it up to 11, as I like to say. My, my little brother loves the, the Spinal Tap reference. You know, I mean, Richard Nixon was able to do all kinds of nefarious stuff involving wiretaps and, and, and uh, money cons and things like that. Yeah, but it wasn't until three and a half years later that he did something that was so outrageous that he actually, you know, got caught. Trump, you know, it takes him three and a half weeks. I mean, one, one thing I like to say is also um, Donald Trump or his lawyers are um, very skilled money launderers. I mean, that's, uh, that's what the tax returns are all about. It's shell company within shell company within shell company. Watergate was, among other things, a money laundering scheme, and Richard Nixon was very poor at it. And the famous uh, conversation with John Dean on March 21st, 1973, John Dean tried to, you know, talk him down from this crazy idea of paying off the burglars to shut up. And he said, you know, we need to raise a million dollars. And it was a figure he just pulled out of his rear end, uh, expecting Nixon to say, you know, yeah, you're right. You know, and John Dean said, that's the kind of thing, you know, mafia people are good at, you know, washing money. We don't know how to do that. And Mr. Nixon, you know, really got his Irish Irish up. He was, you can hear it on the tape. He's he's very indignant that that, that John Dean would suggest that he was uh, worse at money laundering than the mafia. He said, oh. <laughs> You know, I absolutely know how I can get it. You know, he got it from people like the, the Papas, the, the Greek businessman. He, you know, but, you know, it immediately started unschooling as soon as the FBI investigated. One more thing I want to raise, which you've talked about elsewhere. Trump says it will all be easy for him. He will defeat ISIS quickly. He will bring back the jobs now. Healthcare will be a right. beautiful thing. What would Nixon have said to, to that theme? I think he really, really would have reared up and disgusted that. Richard Nixon was, among other things, and kind of most preeminently a planner. He was very careful. He played the long game. You know, he was planning his kind of China move. You know, in, in some you could argue ever since uh, 1967 when he gave a speech at Bohemian Grove. You know, my debunking of that came uh, during the convention, right when um, Paul Manafort said they were, you know. Uh, using his 1968 uh, inauguration speech as a model for his inauguration speech. And of course, both of them talked about law and order, but you know, that was actually quite a gracious speech, kind of full of poetic flights and flights of fancy. You're talking and about Nixon's, Nixon's, Nixon's speech. speech. Yeah. And one of the themes of the speech was, it's not going to be easy. I think he, he, he relished the slog. You know, he was called old iron butt, you know, when he was in law school because he just loved to sit there and prepare and prepare and slog and slog and slog. And, you know, he had a very long attention span. I mean, you can listen to the tapes. He'll go through these hour-long conversations with Kissinger in which they kind of turn over every aspect of the problem. Trump is the guy, you know, who can't even sit in a meeting without tweeting. 
who has the, the, the attention span of a soap bubble. Lots of people say Trump is like Nixon, and a lot of people are, are already saying Trump is worse than Nixon. I would say the opposite. I mean, Nixon kept the war in Vietnam going after 1968 when the United States could have ended it, when LBJ tried to end it. And the result was that because of Nixon, we killed at least a million more Vietnamese and, I don't know, tens of thousands more Americans. Seems to me that is much worse than Trump. Well, John, DJT is only just getting started. <laughs> okay. He has, you know, he's he's already started putting troops on the on the ground in Syria, and uh, you know, if he if he if he you know mishandles all these global hotspots with a State Department that isn't even staffed yet, you know, maybe this story will end with a nuclear holocaust. So uh, let's you know let's give let's, let's let's be fair to the guy. You know, give him a chance. Give him a chance, Rick Perlstein. His essay, Mr. Trump, You're No Richard Nixon, appeared in The New Republic. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, John. Now it's time to talk about Tom Hayden and the forgotten power of the Vietnam peace movement. Tom died on October 23rd. Of course, he was a lifelong activist and also a lifelong writer. He wrote more than a dozen books and edited another, I don't know, six or eight. And his last book, written in the months before he died, has just been published. It's called Hell No, The Forgotten Power of the Vietnam Peace Movement. The editor and publisher of that book is Steve Wasserman. He's now publisher and executive director of Heyday Books, based in Berkeley, California. And he's also a consulting editor to Yale University Press. And he's also a contributor to The Nation magazine, where he wrote about remembering Tom Hayden. We reached him today in Berkeley. Steve Wasserman, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, John. Pleasure to be here. Well, just to remind people, Tom, of course, was a key leader of the Vietnam peace movement. He was put on trial by the Nixon administration and the legendary Chicago conspiracy trial of 1969. And he was convicted of crossing state lines to start a riot, that riot being the protests against the war at the Democratic National Convention in 1968. Uh, eventually, an appeals court reversed his conviction. Then in the 70s, after the war ended, Tom ran for political office in California and ended up serving in the California state legislature for 18 years. Steve, you were present at the creation of this book, and it's because of you that we have Tom's last book. Where did the idea for this book come from? Well, the idea for the book came out of a conference that Tom and others organized two years ago, held in Washington, D.C., to protest the Pentagon's plan to sanitize an official commemoration of America's Vietnam veterans. That plan had conveniently omitted to mention those vets who protested the war. It omitted any mention of the brave young men who resisted the draft or the many millions of us who had come together in an unprecedented movement of opposition. Uh, Tom's uh, raising his hand to object to this uh, commemoration, which Congress had budgeted millions to fund, was a front-page story in the New York Times and other papers. A conference was held to try to correct the Pentagon's whitewashing of history. It brought together about a thousand former organizers and participants in the great movement to oppose that war, including uh, Julian Bond, who alas would die about two months after the 
conference was held in May of uh, two years ago. At that conference, a paper was distributed, which Tom had written, which when I read it, I thought it read like a proposal for a much longer, deeper essay about the movements of opposition that had come together against the war. And so at that conference, I approached Tom uh, and we entered into a conversation about whether or not uh, he could write a book based on that paper. And three weeks later, we had a signed contract with Yale University Press. And alas, uh, a week after that, he suffered a stroke. So how, how did he manage to write this book after that stroke? Well, I flew out to Los Angeles both to uh, see Tom and also, of course, to assure myself that he was still capable of writing the book. That the book got written at all is really something of a, of a miracle. But he was very determined, and the stroke, while it was debilitating, uh, wasn't uh, so terrible that he was unable actually to write. And over the course of the next six months, he acquitted himself of this um, extraordinary essay, which, alas, um, Yale is publishing posthumously. So let's talk about the title, Hell No. <laughs> Yes, well, that was uh, Tom's title, which uh, he insisted on in the face of some considerable misgiving by the um, marketing and sales directors at, at Yale, because uh, there are a number of other books called Hell No, We Won't Go, which, of course, is inspired, were inspired by the, one of the more prominent slogans of, of that era. Uh, Tom insisted that no one would mistake his book for being written by another, and that we should stick with this title because it expressed in its um, vibrancy the uh, heart of uh, the opposition to, to the war. So in the end, we all gave way and stuck with the title uh, and the uh, reading line of the book, The Forgotten Power of the Vietnam Peace Movement, and uh, I'm, I'm, I think he was right. I think this is, this is the title. Tom had two big concerns about the memory of the war that prompted him to do this book. First of all, he was worried that the anti-war movement would be remembered mostly for drug, sex, rock and roll, and flying uh, North Vietnamese flags. Second, he was worried that credit for ending the war would go to Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon. Uh, I just want to talk to you briefly about, about both of those concerns of Tom's and, and how he addresses them uh, in this book. Well, he was certainly concerned that the memory of how the uh, movements of opposition had arisen uh, would, would be both hijacked uh, in the official renderings of that history, as well as uh, sanitized and stricken from mainstream memories. And he was certainly concerned about what we ought to do about it. He felt that the steady denial of protest, that uh, the persistent caricatures of the protesters, the constant questioning of their patriotism, the uh, relentless suggestions that dissenters offered no alternative but surrender to a putative communist threat, had cast a pall of illegitimacy over the memory of that great movement to end the war, and has had a chilling effect on many journalists, uh, including peace dissenters today and the current generation of students. And he was always uh, insisted that one reason for this forgetting was that the Vietnam War was lost. And uh, that is a historical fact that a superpower like the United States can never acknowledge and almost never forgive, because accepting defeat um, is simply not permissible. And so he felt, and I certainly agreed, that if truth is famously 
war's first casualty. Memory is its second. And this book, this modest essay, uh, would be a necessary intervention in an ongoing conflict between empire and democracy. And that contest really defined uh, the whole of his activism. Those of us who who uh, were around in those days are often accused of having uh, nostalgia for the 60s. Uh, would you call this uh, a work of nostalgia for the 60s? Is there nostalgia for the 60s in Tom's last book? I, I don't believe there is. I, I think this is a rather unsentimental, entirely sober uh, look. Uh, one of the things that was I, I always found most admirable about Tom was his uh, refusal uh, to embrace nostalgia for the so-called good old days of the 1960s. I mean, as much as he had a profound respect for the ways uh, that history uh, weighs upon the brain of the living like a nightmare, as was once so famously observed, yes. he spent his life trying to write it by making it in the here and now. And I, I, I don't think Tom ever lost his capacity for outrage at the way things are. It kept him young. Uh, he was not one when you were in conversation with him to bring up, you know, uh, past uh, victories or defeats. Uh, he wanted to know what you were doing now, what was happening now. He lived in, as he once put it in an email to me, in the unforgettable present. Ooh. In this book, Tom does not gloss over or ignore what he regards as the mistakes, the errors, the disasters that, I have to say, we made in that era. No, I think that's one of the most exemplary uh, features uh, of the book, and I'd wish that he'd only lived long enough to have gone into it more deeply. But he was exquisitely aware of how so many self-inflicted wounds had enfeebled uh, movements of opposition and dissent, uh, and, and the temptation too often embraced by what was called the movement to see uh, defeats where we really had victories. And it was a historical irony, and perhaps uh, even a tragedy, that at the very moment of the movement's largest and most broadest appeal, during the years of Nixon's incursion into Cambodia and the May Day demonstrations uh, of May 1971, which saw 13,000 people arrested at RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C., at that very moment, some of the oomph seemed to go out of the movement, and there was a retreat if not exactly into complacency, into a, a widely shared sense of, um, of defeatism and despair, and that uh, protests were no longer uh, working. And what he saw was that at, the, at that very moment, in fact, the, the, the Nixon administration was on the verge of collapsing in, in Watergate and was on the verge of, of not being able to hold its establishment coalition together. And so when he turned with his associates and his then wife, Jane Fonda, and created the Indochina peace campaign to put electoral and lobbying pressure on Congress, which would, at the end of the day, see Congress refusing any longer to fund the war. That really drove the proverbial uh, nail into the coffin that was Indochina, and it ended uh, the war, and it caused the uh, final withdrawal of all American troops. It was a great victory. One of the most moving parts of Tom's book is his account of his return to Vietnam. Of course, he had famously visited Vietnam at the height of the war, one of the very few Americans to go there and to face the wrath of official America when he returned. It took him a long time to go back. Tell us a little about his return. Well, he went back, if I'm not mistaken, in, I think it was 2007, yes, 
Christmas 2007, he uh, and his wife, Barbara Williams, and his then seven-year-old son, uh, Liam, uh, went back to Vietnam, and he, he went back to visit many of the um, Vietnamese that he had met uh, 50 years uh, before. And that last closing portion of the essay is wistful, uh, shot through with a kind of melancholy, a sense of time having passed, and also with a grave uh, sense of the futility uh, and absurdity of so many millions of lives having been lost uh, on both sides and raising the specter for what exactly? I mean, here we are in a situation where the United States and Vietnam have achieved a kind of rapprochement where the uh, citizens of, of Vietnam want all the goodies that could be had that and seen in the capitalist West. What was it all for? He asks very profound, even existential questions, uh, which explode the uh, ideological conceits of, um, of a half-century worth of striving, exhaustion, and struggle. And the book ends with Obama's visit to Vietnam, something that didn't get as much coverage as it might have, but that Tom was following closely. Yes. Well, Tom, I think, was someone who never wanted to underestimate the um, radical implications of gestures. And the 2016 official visit to Vietnam, in which Obama stepped into what Tom described as friendly street crowds and became the first president to, to gaze on people who had defeated the United States and was seeking a kind of reconciliation. I mean, that's a gesture, of course, that's denounced and reviled by the uh, right in this country and, uh, is the, uh, and is mocked and is scorned. But on every historical level, Tom felt that it represented a shift that was more profound than, than even Tom could find words to fully convey. And um, uh, it's quite moving, uh, his account of a, a scene when, when Obama chooses at one moment to step free of his official handlers and uh, asks to visit the uh, small hatched roofed house on stilts where Ho Chi Minh had sat feeding his fish during retreats and other rests. And, uh, and Obama is shown in the footage that survives from that, from that visit uh, being instructed about how the Vietnamese feed fish by hand from a, from a bucket. And um, Tom took all of that as a very encouraging sign that even after so much bloodshed, so many tears, so many deaths, that it might still be possible for our two countries to come together and, and achieve some kind of uh, reconciliation after so long a struggle. The book is Hell No, The Forgotten Power of the Vietnam Peace Movement. It's Tom Hayden's last book, edited and published by Steve Wasserman, who wrote about it for The Nation. Steve, thanks for bringing this book into the world, and thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. Finally, a word about this week's edition of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. On Dave's new show, Jamel Hill, the co-host of ESPN's 6 p.m. show Sports Center, talks about dealing with the haters. And Dave has a Just Stand Up Award for the women of USA Hockey. The Edge of Sports podcast is where sports and politics collide. 
hosted by the sports editor of The Nation, and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants, along with calls from listeners. So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday, now at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.